The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the History of Literature. It's my birthday today, the day that I'm preparing this. Thank you to everyone who wished me a happy birthday. Oh, I did not know I had so many friends and well-wishers, but I do appreciate it. So thank you very much. I'll confess I've been a little down lately. Maybe you've sensed that. And guess what? I've been diving into movies in order to help me recover. Sometimes poetry and novels just aren't the ticket. I did spend an hour talking with Mike about Ulysses, which helped. He's been online reading these ginormous books with his fellow Twitterers, and hearing the news from that project was definitely a lift to the spirits. And then I thought, my goodness, what am I going to cover on the History of Literature podcast? Because sometimes if my heart's not in it, it just doesn't feel honest. I know, I know. I know, half of you don't care. You want the literature, and it angers you, irritates you. Maybe it's anger. Angers you when I don't just give you straight literature talk. But for those of you who still have a heart, (laughs) I'm talking to you. This is not always easy, people. I've been doing this for something like seven years now. We've been through a lot together, haven't we? We've been through a lot, and sometimes I feel supercharged and ready to dig down into that well and come up with something interesting to say about these books, and sometimes not so much. So I can go in two directions at that point. I can tell you about something that bores me, because it is, after all, the history of literature, and there's plenty to talk about. There are always plenty of facts and so on that I can present. I can always choose an author and dive in and Usually, I go ahead and start that, and then it does perk me up a bit, and by the end, I'm rolling, ready to go. But sometimes, just facing the prospect is a bit of a slog, and I don't want to enter a slog, not on my birthday. But the show must go on, as they say, so I thought I won't take the slog path, I'll take the other path, which is to find something I'm actually enthusiastic about and talk about that. And so, we have, of all things, of all people film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times and television movie reviewer extraordinaire, Roger Ebert. I'm going to talk about him today. Why Roger Ebert? Did we do the theme song yet? Let's just get that out of the way. Can we put that in as background or something? (laughs) Okay. Why Roger Ebert? He was a fixture of my childhood, my adolescence, but I only really came to appreciate him later in life, even after he passed away, I would say, maybe a little before, and then after. Appreciate him and his writing. His pairing with Gene Siskel is is one of those Laurel and Hardy kind of moments where two pieces of the battery, however that works, (laughs) not an electrician, (laughs) engineer, scientist, You know how it works. Batteries fit together, and then the electricity starts flowing. There's some physical resemblance. It's like Laurel and Hardy, right? When they found one another, there's some physical resemblances between Siskel and Ebert and Laurel and Hardy. But really what I mean is two people who found their greatness in and through their partnership with one another. Why Roger Ebert? I feel like I need to make the case for him even to be on this show. An episode about Roger Ebert on the history of literature. He wrote film criticism and and a little a little else, essays, autobiography. And yet, I think 
he does belong in this consideration. I think it's worth taking a little time to figure out why I think so. I'm also going to tell a personal story today. This is my birthday, after all. Maybe one episode a year I can indulge myself, okay? If this isn't your thing, check in again next episode. We'll be talking about uh, Dostoevsky or Jane Austen or someone. You'll enjoy that one, I am sure. Okay, so let's say that Roger Ebert, as a film critic, can stand in for all the sort of tangential writings connected to literature, or in this case, film, which I consider to be part of literature. Is it literature? Movie reviews? Does it matter? It's words that do a job, perform a function, tell us something, entertain us. It's probably, you could say that at its highest levels, it's probably more literature than a lot of literature actually is. (laughs) more than a lot of fiction is anyway. But if you want to draw lines around literature and say, well, where do you stop? Song lyrics, advice columns, are those literature cereal boxes? Is that literature Jack Wilson? Well, that's fine too. Let's set aside the question for now and just talk about Roger Ebert and see where we wind up. He was born in 1942, roughly my father's age in Urbana, Illinois, which is about two hours south of Chicago. You drive past a lot of farmland to get there. But it's not exactly the sticks either, Urbana, because it has a large university there, the University of Illinois. His father, Ebert's father, was an electrician. His mother was a bookkeeper. His parents were German immigrants with a smattering of Irish and Dutch mixed in back there in his heritage. Roger grew up as a member of the silent generation. Not quite a baby boomer, but close enough in age that he was basically a part of everything that they were a part of. Being a kid in the Cold War, the Atomic Age, the age of Sputnik, or whatever you want to call it, Elvis, the JFK assassination, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, choose your baby boomer milestone. He loved Mad Magazine. Well, didn't a lot of Midwestern kids looking for something knowing something that thumbed their nose, thumbed its nose at authority, something that one's parents didn't like or get. Something that said, guess what? People have sex. Here's what your parents and grandparents aren't telling you. Here's what television doesn't reflect. He started writing at a young age for student papers, and his interests were science fiction and sports, and then... It quickly became movies, his great passion. This was the this coincided with the era of French New Wave films and Italian neorealism. And one of his first movie reviews was for Fellini's La Dolce Vita, which he wrote for the University of Illinois student newspaper in 1961. He was 19 years old. Let's jump ahead. 30 years when I went through my own French New Wave and Italian neorealism phase myself when I was about 19, and I read a lot about it. I didn't look to Roger Ebert, though. For me, he was the guy on TV and whose syndicated movie reviews were in my hometown newspaper. And then when I landed at the University of Chicago, I got his reviews straight from the source in the Chicago Sun-Times. One of the strange things I found after growing up watching Siskel and Ebert, and really, I can't emphasize how important those two were. That Those two were, the, the, their show was just a staple of television in the 1980s. Going to the movies was a big deal. 
It was a big event, a big trip. And their show, Sneak Previews, and then At the Movies, and then I think it was just called Siskel and Ebert At the Movies or something. That was must-see television in my house, at least for me. I watched it every single week. It was very hard not to watch it once it came on. The show went down so easy. And I always, watching the show, I always kind of agreed with Gene on television. I I always thought he was a little sharper, a little more persuasive, maybe a little better of a reviewer. And then when I was in college and got both newspapers and could read them side by side, reading the movie reviews, eager to see there was a movie in my future that was going to be part of my weekend, I discovered that I liked Roger's writing better. I don't know why this surprised me so much. Maybe because I had seen them both on television for so long, both on their show and on Johnny Carson, David Letterman, places like that, Oprah. Maybe because I had seen them both so often, I thought I knew them. But although Roger on screen held his own just fine, maybe scrambling just a little bit to keep up with the more confident Gene, Roger on the page was amazing. His reviews were a marvel of precision, humor, tone, voice, insight, and warmth. He is, or was, is an astonishingly good writer. When he was just starting out, he sent some of his columns to Pauline Kael, the dean of reviewers at the time, and she said, these are the best reviews being written for a newspaper in America. He was proud to be a newspaperman, that great profession in those days when most people subscribed to at least one paper, maybe two, morning and afternoon, or a couple of morning papers. And he lived that newspaperman's life in Chicago, going to haunts and getting drunk with reporters and columnists until he gave up alcohol because of the toll it was taking on his life. The writing always came easy for him. He won the Pulitzer Prize, and deservedly so. Siskel never managed that. I'll tell you, the two genuinely disliked each other at times, especially early on, and they argued with real venom, and they could be petty toward one another. They eventually became sort of like brothers who can't stop fighting with each other, but who are inextricably linked and who would protect each other against the outside world. And Gene's go-to crack against Roger was, was that he was heavy. Once he said, oh, you were late for the taping today. What, was there a McDonald's open? Kind of mean. And Roger's go-to response would always be that he had won the Pulitzer Prize. And Gene, God bless Gene, I think he was so tightly wound that he was unhappy much of the time. And I've seen him insult Roger probably a a thousand times or more, but listen to Gene when they're asked by Bob Costas in this clip I'm going to play. Bob asks them, what question would you ask one another? We're going to give truth serum to you both, and then you get to ask each other a question. And Gene asks Roger what he fears the most. And Roger explains that he's always felt this fear of falling. It's been one of his recurring dreams since he was a young child. And then it's Roger's turn to come up with a question for Gene. Listen to this. I wonder what I would ask Gene. Well, it's your turn. Truth serum. He's going to give you a truthful answer. He's going to give me a truthful answer. The problem is his question was really a very good one. 
Um, see, we're even competitive about that. Yeah. And that's annoying to him, you can tell. Yeah. Okay, I'll ask a question. Go ahead. What do you envy the most about me? Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. I knew it was going to be something like that. A very intelligently worded question, too, yeah. because it presupposes that there's actually a long list, yes. and you've been asked that's only right. to, to most, cite the most. the most. We don't have time for the entire <laughs> list. You know what I love about that question is, Alan, and I answer, will answer it, okay. and I will answer it, but the answer won't be as interesting as this. Uh, Speak for yourself. It's your answer. <laughs> yeah. Is uh, that what that question reveals about Roger is something I've always suspected, which is he is really not interested in me at all and is interested far more in himself. Bob, so that is the truth. I feel that right here you have one-stop full-service film criticism. I can give you the any answer that you require involving a film, new or old. We really don't need him in order to completely... You know, I was so you view, you view him as your foil? It's very difficult because, you know, over we've been on the air now 17 years, and over that period of time, I've reluctantly come to conclude that I wouldn't have had the same measure of success without Gene. That, in fact, even though both of us have gone through our entire careers feeling that the other person was essentially unnecessary, and the only thing incomplete about what Gene just said was that he feels I'm as unnecessary as I feel he does. Not true. You don't? No. Well, it, it's true. Then no, I, I, I think I, because I am more necessary than you. No. Um, I answered uh, your question honestly. Now, what do I envy of you? Uh, I've said this many times. I think you're a marvelous writer, and uh, I think that Roger, uh, my reviews are more written in news fashion, like a. Uh, you know, a, a reporter going to a fire. Here's the most important thing that I felt about the movie, and bang, here mm -hmm. it is, and here's supporting evidence, and I'm out of here. That kind of approach. Right. Roger is more of an essayist, and uh, uh, I envy that because it's it's a it's a real skill. And in the city of Chicago, and I, I would think nationwide because his column syndicated, I think he's very highly regarded as a pure writer, and I think that's great. Hmm. He envies his writing. Well, let's hear from some of that writing because it's going to get at why I've chosen to cover Roger Ebert today. Here he is on the movie Raging Bull. Quote, the equation between his, that's Jake LaMotta, the Robert De Niro character, the equation between his prize fighting and his sexuality is inescapable. And we see the trap he's in. LaMotta is the victim of base needs and instincts that, in his case, are not accompanied by the insights and maturity necessary for him to cope with them. The raging bull, the poor sap. End quote. That's the movie in a nutshell. The dilemma, the deep psychology of the main character, but delivered in completely understandable and even enjoyable prose. The raging bull, the poor sap. Six words, pithy, complete, Tells me everything I need to know and expands my understanding of the movie. This is the character. This is why Scorsese and De Niro worked so hard at presenting this character. This is the type of person I will meet and try to understand if I give this movie two hours of my time. Maybe it will help me understand people around me too or something within myself. Don't we all fight against this dilemma or know people who do? Or if we don't, how did we avoid it? Here's uh, an excerpt from a review of a movie that Roger didn't like much called Baby Geniuses. He quotes Wordsworth. It says he'd rather just print Wordsworth's poem than continue with his review, and no doubt the reader would be better served as well, but he will press on. 
As he runs through the movie and the idea of babies in movies, and as his thoughts continue, his desire for the movie to just be better includes some quotes from favorite English poets, but in the service of making a larger point about what we might expect from a movie called Baby Geniuses. He writes, quote, There's only one way the movie might have worked, if the babies had been really, really smart. After all, according to the theory, they come into this world trailing clouds of glory. Wordsworth. Again, the man can write. They possess universal knowledge. Wouldn't you expect them to sound a little like Jesus or Aristotle or at least Wayne Dwyer? But no, they arrive on this mortal coil, Shakespeare, from that level higher than the sphery chime, Milton, and we expect their speech to flow in heavenly eloquence, Dryden. But when they open their little mouths, what do they say? Diaper gravy, a term used four times in the movie, according to a friend who counted. Cleland. End quote. But for all of his insightfulness about films, the true beauty of a Roger Ebert review was the way that it could connect those films to life. This is from a review of Deja Vu, a 1998 film by Henry Jaglum, a friend of Orson Welles. And eventually, Roger turns to Citizen Kane to help make his point. Here we go. This is Deja Vu, a review of Deja Vu. Quote, In Citizen Kane, which Wells made in 1941, there occurs my favorite passage of movie dialogue. Old Mr. Bernstein is talking about the peculiarities of time. Quote, A fellow will remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember, he says. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry, and as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in and on it there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. End quote. Late in Deja Vu, a character tells a similar story about a woman he once met. A week hasn't gone by since I last saw her that I haven't thought of her. She was the love of my life. Yes. And can you, dear reader, think of such a moment too? Perfect love is almost always unrealized. It has to be. What makes those memories perfect is that they produce no history. The woman with the white parasol remains always frozen in an old man's memory. She never grows old, is never out of temper, never loses interest in him, never dies. She exists forever as a promise, like the green light at the end of Gatsby's Pier. Only rarely does the universe wheel around to bring two hearts once again into communion. That's what Deja Vu is about, and that explains the two most curious characters in it. They are the old couple, who own the house where the two main characters meet by accident. They have been married a very long time, and like to read in bed, and eat Mars bars at the same time, and be happy to be together. At first, you wonder what their scenes mean. Then you understand. End quote. That's the end of the review. I'm tempted to just run our theme song here because I don't think we'll top that, but I guess we will have to press on. 
Is this literature? Well, Roger Ebert is in the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. It's something close. It's using words to make us feel things, even if at times it also has a job to do. The job is to tell us who's in the picture, who directed it, and so on. But literature often has a job to do as well. Laurie Moore said something once about half the battle in fiction is getting the characters into the car. Certainly, if we're willing to include essays as part of literature, as I believe we should, there's no real reason to exclude movie reviews. And in any case, who cares about labels? (laughs) Is it trying to do the same thing as literature to accomplish the same effects? Maybe not all the time. Maybe not all reviewers. But Roger Ebert had a pretty high rate of success. Writing came easily for Roger. He once told an interviewer, quote, When I write, I fall into the zone many writers, painters, musicians, athletes, and craftsmen of all sorts seem to share. In doing something I enjoy and am expert at, deliberate thought falls aside, and it is all just there. I think of the next word no more than the composer thinks of the next note. End quote. And this is a treat. He could be wickedly funny about movies he didn't like. He watched four movies a day. Most movies are bad. Separating the good from the bad is an important part of his job. And mostly, he was just disappointed when it was good people who were capable of making good movies. Well then, it's intensely disappointing, isn't it, to see something that just goes wrong. Once he said, okay, I'm sure the agents wanted John Travolta to make this movie and the business managers, but wasn't there some intern who could have caught him at some point as he was getting on the elevator and pulled him aside and said, no, no, at this point in your career, you don't have to do this. Roger wanted movies to be good because he loved movies. He was generous. He didn't expect every movie to be Citizen Kane. And he appreciated science fiction on its own terms and kids' movies on their own terms and dumb comedies on their own terms, too. But they had to live up to the standards to which they aspired. A dumb comedy would have to at least be funny, for example. And when the movies didn't live up to their own standards, Roger was there to let us know. Let's take a break and come back with some reviews where Roger decidedly did not like the movie. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Gene Siskel wrote for the Chicago Tribune, the establishment paper of Chicago. Other famous critics of his era, notably Pauline Kael, wrote for The New Yorker. Andrew Saris wrote for The Village Voice and was a professor at Columbia. Ebert was proudly on the pages of the Chicago Sun-Times, the working man's paper in a blue-collar town. And although he loved film festivals and art house movies, he truly did admire the greatness of cinema, including the most intellectual and artistically ambitious films, as well as well-made crowd-pleasers like Lawrence of Arabia or E.T. He was always writing from the vantage point of a decent, intelligent person who was not necessarily a professor of film or a black turtleneck-wearing aficionado of the cinema, but someone who just worked all week, raised their kids as well as they could, who helped out their parents, who maybe went to church on Sunday, maybe not, who lived in their community, and wanted their schools to be decent, and the trees to be shady, and the hell-raising to be lawful, and the week to be elevated once in a while with two hours of wonder that remind us of how lucky we are to live in the world and how good life can be. If the movie couldn't deliver that to those people, those people were better off without the movie, and they could at least enjoy the few minutes on the train or in the coffee break room or in the Easy Boy recliner as the summer sun faded. At least enjoy Roger's take on the movie. A few minutes of pleasure reading his prose. If the movie sucked, Roger's review might be all the better. Here he is on the movie Tommy Boy. Quote, Tommy Boy is one of those movies that plays like an explosion down at the screenplay factory. You can almost picture a bewildered office boy, his face smudged with soot, wandering through the ruins and rescuing pages at random. Too bad they didn't mail them to the insurance company instead of filming them. The movie is an assembly of cliches and obligatory scenes from dozens of other movies. All are better. It has only one original idea, and that's a bad one. The inspiration of making the hero's sidekick into, simultaneously, his buddy, his critic, and his rival. It's like the part was written by three writers locked in separate rooms. End quote. Here he is on, here he is on the, the uh, popcorn movie Armageddon. Quote, The movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. No matter what they're charging to get in, it's worth more to get out. Armageddon reportedly used the services of nine writers. Why did it need any? The dialogue is either shouted one-liners or romantic drivel. It's gonna blow! Is used so many times, I wonder if every single writer used it once and then sat back from his word processor with a contented smile on his face. Another day's work done. End quote. Here's another action movie, Transformers. Roger says, quote, The movie is a horrible experience of unbearable length, briefly punctuated by three or four amusing moments. One of these involves a dog-like robot humping the leg of the heroine. Such are the meager joys. End quote. And he also says, If you want to save yourself the ticket price of this movie, Transformers, go into the kitchen, cue up a male choir singing the music of hell, and get a kid to start banging pots and pans together. Then close your eyes and use your imagination. End quote. This one is kind of famous. This is from his review of The Village. He says, quote, Eventually the secret is revealed. 
It's a crummy secret about one step up the ladder of narrative originality from It Was All a Dream. It's so witless, in fact, that when we do discover the secret, we want to rewind the film so we don't know the secret anymore, and then keep on rewinding and rewinding until we're back at the beginning and can get up from our seats and walk backward out of the theater and go down the up escalator and watch the money spring from the cash register into our pockets. End quote. (laughs) This is from his review of Good Luck Chuck. Quote, There is a word for this movie, and that word is ick. (laughs) Police Academy. Quote, It's so bad, maybe you should pull your money and draw straws and send one of the guys off to rent it so that in the future, whenever you think you're sitting through a bad comedy, he could shake his head and chuckle tolerantly and explain that you don't know what bad is. His review of The Human Centipede, he struggled to give it even a single star. He says, I am required to award stars to movies I review. This time, I refuse to do it. The star rating system is unsuited to this film. Is the movie good? Is it bad? Does it matter? It is what it is and occupies a world where the stars don't shine. Next one is a famous one, a Rob Reiner film called North that Ebert hated. (laughs) Hated so much his review. He took a title for one of his collection of reviews from this review. He says, quote, I hated this movie. Hated, 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 hated this movie. Hated it. Hated every simpering, stupid, vacant, audience-insulting moment of it. Hated the sensibility that thought anyone would like it. Hated the implied insult to the audience by its belief that anyone would be entertained by it. End quote. There's an amusing New Yorker piece by the author of the screenplay for North, who met Roger Ebert and then ran into him once in a bathroom after he had, at a restaurant bathroom after he had, uh, written this review, which is pretty harsh. (laughs) Pretty harsh. Okay. I have a few more, but maybe that's enough. Let's skip ahead. So when Roger championed a movie, he could elevate it into a realm that not only praised its finer qualities, but anticipated its critics and addressed them as well, putting them in perspective and letting the film break free of the constraints of negativity that tethered it to the earth. His famous review of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is one such review. This was when the movie was getting buried under social commentary and metacriticism with stories not so much about the movie itself, but about whether the movie would cause riots or whether the movie was racist or reverse racist. And people said, hey, the message in this movie is muddled. It doesn't tell us clearly that violence is bad or that the the bad cops are just a few bad apples and will be punished in the end, or doesn't really tell us what we're supposed to think. And Roger Ebert said, do we ask white directors this question, not just directors of TV movies or cultural agitprop, but artists? Do we ask artists, Europeans, white Americans, do we ask them to serve up messages neatly on a platter? Or do we respect them more for taking us into gray areas and exploring those with us, demanding that we ask these questions and try to live with them, learning from unanswerable questions by asking ourselves what makes them unanswerable? Here's Roger in 1989 talking about do the right thing. Quote, of course do the right thing is confused. 
Of course it wavers between middle-class values and street values. Of course it is not sure whether it believes in liberal pieties or militancy. Of course some of the characters are sympathetic and others are hateful. And of course some of the likable characters do bad things. Isn't that the way it is in America today? Anyone who walks into this film expecting answers is a dreamer or a fool. But anyone who leaves the movie with more intolerance than they walked in with wasn't paying attention. End quote. Another review where he defended the film was of uh, his review of Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola, which was being disparaged for not being historically accurate. And Ebert said, quote, Coppola's oblique and anachronistic point of view shifts the balance away from realism and into an act of empathy for a girl swept up by events that leave her without personal choices. Before she was a queen, before she was a pawn, Marie was a 14-year-old girl taken from her home, stripped bare, and examined like so much horse flesh. It is astonishing with what indifference for her feelings the court aristocracy uses her for its pleasure, and in killing her, disposes of its guilt. Mm, that is such good writing. When you read a review of a movie that Ebert recommended, what is good in the movie, not just checking some boxes of plot or characters or direction or, or humor or exciting action, but telling you what to watch for, what's different, what the movie is attempting to do, and whether it, ex it succeeds on some level. What is there to be found in this film? It's not necessarily schematic. It doesn't start with movies. It starts with the viewer, who in Ebert's implied conception is curious, empathetic, intelligent, and wants to be informed, entertained, or moved. He took this responsibility seriously. He loved filmmakers like Spike Lee and Scorsese and a number of others, but he would criticize their films too. His loyalty was to the audience. He said once in an interview, quote, You have to realize you're not writing for the filmmakers. You're writing for the potential film audience. And I would much rather hurt somebody's feelings who made the picture than send somebody to see a movie and spend two hours of their life seeing a movie that I don't think is worth seeing. End quote. That two hours is important. Ebert cared about people. He could go to these parties in Hollywood, hobnob with the beautiful people, insert himself into whatever glamorous or glitzy party or event he wanted, and he could have made that his reality. He could have given up that Chicago and that Illinois world for a frothier one. He could have traded in all the meat and potatoes for cake and champagne. But he didn't. He didn't because he didn't forget the electricians and bookkeepers of the world who didn't have unlimited time and money to burn. They had one shot that week, one shot for entertainment, a bit of cash, a bit of time. And if the movie at the local picture house was bad, then they'd be better off doing something else and waiting for next Saturday. Roger Ebert lived a good life. He was a national, maybe a world, celebrity. He did what he wanted to do. He succeeded far beyond what the son of an electrician and a bookkeeper could have expected. He fell in love with and married a woman, Chaz, who seems like an amazing person and who seems to have loved him as deeply as he loved her. He was 50 then. I think he was happy. And then he became ill diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and he began to write about that too, and to reflect harder on life and death and what it all means. 
The illness took away his ability to speak well. It distorted his appearance beyond what television viewers expected, and he faced it all with courage. He was the boy at the movies, the boy of the silent generation, the Midwesterner who hadn't lost his sense of humanity, even after being dealt an unlucky hand. He died in 2012, having lived through 10 years of painful illness. Before he died, he wrote about death. He said, quote, I know it is coming, and I do not fear it, because I believe there is nothing on the other side of death to fear. I hope to be spared as much pain as possible on the approach path. I was perfectly content before I was born, and I think of death as the same state. What I am grateful for is the gift of intelligence and for life, love, wonder, and laughter. You can't say it wasn't interesting. My lifetime's memories are what I have brought home from the trip. I will require them for eternity, no more than that little souvenir of the Eiffel Tower I brought home from Paris. End quote. Let's take a quick break, and then I'll get my story off my chest. I have a friend to whom I said I would tell the story, and then I had to backtrack and ask if she'd ever seen Freaks and Geeks, because that's part of the story, or my understanding of the story anyway, and she hadn't seen it, and I wanted to wait until she gave it a try. But hey, nobody wants to get homework assigned. So I said, never mind, I'll just try to explain the whole thing, including the Freaks and Geeks part. But then I thought, this is a good story, it's important to me, and why not share it with the rest of you too? My birthday present to myself, I guess. Happy birthday to me, <laughs> telling a story about myself. We will have that story after this. So this is my dad story. Well, it's a dad story. I mean, I'm getting older now. I might be closer to being a grandfather than being the father of a newborn. And yet I'm still adjusting to the idea of being a dad. Can't quite get my mind around it, even though it's been all this time. I am a dad. That's the thing about getting older. It's very easy to identify with the protagonist of a story who are usually in their teens or 20s. When I read Jane Austen, I imagine myself as Darcy or one of the other suitors, or I'm right there in the family as a sister, rising and falling along with them. I don't imagine myself as Lizzie's father. I don't view myself as the father in Calvin and Hobbes. When I read Calvin and Hobbes, I'm Calvin or Hobbes. But my kids view me as the dad. In every movie, every book, every comic strip, they're the heroes, and I'm the dad. They'll laugh and point at me, and it has made me realize how much the dad is, how often the dad is the figure of fun. That's usually the case. The clueless dad, the one with his glasses tipped up on the edge of his nose because he can't quite see, which is something I do now. The dad who runs on the treadmill, laboring with unbelievable effort, which I also do. I am the dad figure. Say la vie, I guess, although part of me thinks, is this really my V? Is this my V? <laughs> Can't I get a different V? 
<laughs> I'm in the movie of my life, as we all are, but I sometimes feel that I'm being escorted out of the spotlight, ushered into the wings. I'm in the scene, providing advice or offering an example, for better or worse, of things that the hero should or shouldn't do. It's a transition to go from being the star of the show to the side character. It's a tra transition I feel like I'm making. So, happy birthday to me. One step closer to being the guy in the wings. Maybe a, a, a key scene or two, if they let me on the stage at all. Which brings me to Freaks and Geeks, the Judd Apatow show with Linda Cardellini and a whole bunch of people who became famous, Jason Siegel and James Franco and Seth Rogen, among them, Martin Starr, Busy Phillips. And I watched the show and clearly, clearly my sister is Linda Cardellini. That is exactly who she was in high school. The show could be about her. She even looks a little like her. And I suppose I'm sort of the little brother at least I started out that way before I grew into being some combination of freak and geek and jock. The family of four, their house looks a bit like our house did, and the parents are the stable and responsible ones like my parents were, and the rest of the town is full of a lot of degenerates, as my town was too. It's a wonderful show, and it was rated dead last when it was on the air. <laughs> One of the things that the characters never got was a victory. No victories for the kids. The producers insisted on that, even as the networks begged them for one. But I don't want to get off track too much about the show because I want to talk about the show's ending, which I find absolutely heartbreaking. The best two scenes for me are the, the one in the school dance and the pilot and the scene in the last episode, which if you want to avoid spoilers, I guess now is the time to skip. But hey, it's worth watching this show, even if you know what happens, so feel free to listen too. So throughout the series, the running story is that Lindsay, the good girl, the mathlete, who doesn't quite know where she fits in high school, we watch her make her way through high school. She's an academic star headed for college, but this is high school and she wants to hang out with her friends too, except not her mathlete friends. This year, sometimes her mathlete friends are okay, but she's also pretty and she's cool and something draws her to the world of the kids who aren't quite as good in school, but who have their own subculture going on. They're the rebels. They're the burnouts. It's in some way, of, uh, in some ways, these characters are a little less mature, but they're also more grown up. This is so recognizable to me. Those guys in high school who were clearly headed nowhere but who had their own car and maybe a part-time job and maybe already knew they were going to work at General Motors or they had a job on a farm lined up or they were going to help their uncle in his auto body shop. Work construction, make good money, drink beer, play softball, eventually get married and have a kid, not necessarily in that order. They had their lives set up already in high school. High school was not for them. Neither was college. And Lindsay, in the show, starts to find a home with these kids. A bit of slumming, slumming it sometimes, and genuine friendship sometimes. And that was me, and it was my sister, and it was a lot of kids in high school. You're friends with these kids, even as you kind of know eventually you're all going to move on and do different things. In high school, you can, you can expand your groups. 
But for now, you don't need to move on. You need friends and experiences and fun. And Lindsay's parents in the show are this perfect combination of how parents really are. They want you to be happy, of course, and they want to give you freedom. They're trying to open themselves up to your new friends, but they also want to set boundaries and make sure you get good grades and stay out of trouble. And it's a lot more relaxing to know that your daughter is a mathlete than that she's watching some some guys practice their band that's going nowhere in some stranger, some strange guy's basement. Like I said, I watch Freaks and Geeks and imagine myself in that basement hanging out, maybe trying to get out eventually, but for now, just enjoying the company of others, being cool. But when I watch the show with my kids, they laugh when the dad comes on the screen and they point at me and I catch myself remembering, I'm the dad now. I'm the dad here. I'm not the kid in high school. That dilemma, that situation, that scenario, that person, that's all gone. Part of my past. Over. I'm now the dad watching two other people go through it, guiding them to the extent I can, living and dying, but all behind this mask of of jokes and good humor and stern lessons when they come home with a bad grade or make some kind of mistake. That's what they need, and that's what I provide. And that, I guess, is who I am. So Lindsay goes through her year of high school. At times, it looks like these friends might pull her under, and at times, it looks like she might make it out. And her counselors and teachers are with her parents and saying, Lindsay, come on, you're better than this. And she makes it into a, she gets a scholarship for the summer. That's going to be her summer, headed out to the university to take some classes, starting her destiny a little early. And she gets on the bus, and she says goodbye to her parents, who are smiling and so proud, tears in their eyes. And she's sad to leave them, too, because they've been so important to her. And you really have seen this in the episodes, how her parents have been so supportive, even as she tests their patience. They've been the sort of parents that are kind of strict, but kind of the parents all the kids in the show wish they had because they come through. And Lindsay says goodbye to her mom, and they're both in tears. And it's just heartbreaking from the parents' point of view. And I watch the show thinking of how my parents dropped me off for college, and I couldn't wait for them to leave so I could get started making friends in the dorm. And then my mom told me later that they cried on the way home. And I felt this pang of guilt and regret, thinking that it was kind of the end of an era and it had been a pretty good era. Except I have to remind myself once again that I'm not Lindsay waving goodbye to my parents from the bus. I'm the dad waving goodbye at the bus. It is heartbreaking. And then Lindsay in the show gets off the bus when her parents aren't looking, and she joins the car with her freak friends who are planning to go to Grateful Dead concerts all summer. And that's heartbreaking too. Heartbreaking because you know it's what Lindsay wants to do. And it might be a bit of a bad decision, but not really. By this point, you want her to have these friendships a little longer too because everyone in this group has each other's back and and they're having fun and college can wait. And the parents will have to deal with this though 
We know it won't be easy. I identify a little more with them now than I did back when I was a teenager. When I was a kid, I would have thought, oh, I would have watched the show and thought, oh, at some point, those those annoying parents will probably holler and complain when they find out what Lindsay did, that she ditched this college, this summer scholarship. And now I think, oh, why, Lindsay, why do you have to set them up for this heartbreak? Why do this to them? Even though I feel like I probably would have been Lindsay at that point, too, and I can understand why she's doing it. And I think it's going to be okay. The hardest moment of parenting for so far for me, other than times when my kids are sick and you want so badly for them not to feel bad, that's the hardest. The other hardest part came when my son went to kindergarten. First day of kindergarten, he had a little note on his chest, a little sticker he was wearing that had his teacher's name and his classroom number in case he got lost and didn't know how to find his way so people would know where to steer him, the grown-ups who were taking over my job, looking out for him. And we walked to the bus stop, and he, the bus came, and he jumped on the bus. He was so excited to go, and we saw him sit in his seat. We could see his little head through the window, and we waved, and he didn't see us. He didn't wave goodbye. He was already on his way. It was a a kindergarten he was going to that we had just moved to town. We hadn't even had the chance to see it. And here he was, so grown up and so ready and so eager to face his new challenge. It felt like the end of a five-year era of us with him. And his little brother, who was standing with us on the sidewalk, burst into tears to see him go. And we all watched the bus disappear, and then we walked back to our house from the bus stop, sobbing, excited, glad, happy, but devastated. Flash forward. Twelve years later, this spring, my son, who once went off to kindergarten, just graduated from high school. It's so exciting. We're so proud at all, all this growing, all this achievement it's his turn on the stage, and he's about to go through a great run in the spotlight with college in the fall and no doubt a job, all kinds of other important things after that, while I edge closer and closer to the wings, headed for my inevitable role as a bit player, a cameo, the goofy dad, the old man, maybe a bit of wisdom, maybe a pratfall, who knows. As it turns out, he has two cousins who also graduated this year, graduated from high school, all three of them, same year, and all three got together a month or so ago. My wife and her two sisters, all with their three children, high school graduates, and they spent a week together at my sister-in-law's house doing celebratory events and so on. They went to the amusement park. They did lots of fun things, taking pictures just celebrating. And I stayed home because my younger one was still in school. His school had not finished. And then on Friday, his week was wrapped up and we could drive up to visit them all. And so the plan was that we would take them all out to eat that night. A dozen or so family members we would go to a nice restaurant because the other sisters were throwing parties and so on for the kids on different days. So it was our turn. 
And then this was the plan. I would turn around and drive back the very next day because my older son actually wanted to come home early because he was planning to go to the beach with his friends for a week. So I was not a fan of the week at the beach. It sounded to me like expensive potential trouble. But I couldn't deny that it would be more fun than I could promise. And so throughout the school year, we set all these conditions of behavior and grades and earning money and everything. And my son met them all. And finally, I relented. My wife persuaded me. She was on his side, as she has to be sometimes, because I'm kind of a stickler. I didn't have a lot of nice things growing up. I didn't get to do a lot of fun stuff, it seems. It's easy for me to stay home and to tell others that they should do the same. Okay, but I could see this coming. I could see what my weekend was going to be. Friday, leaving at noon, driving four hours with one kid, then taking everyone to dinner, paying with my credit card, then quick night of sleep, getting up at six the next morning and driving four hours back. Maybe a little longer with stops. And then delivering my son to his friends, his beach-going friends, his fellow freaks. College awaits, but college, not yet. Everything that weekend goes well. Pay for the meal. Happy to do it. Congratulations to my son and my niece and my nephew. Let's get ice cream, too. Also on me, my treat. You're welcome, kids. Congrats and good luck. And then the next morning and the drive, and my son is extremely eager to make progress because he wants to leave ASAP for the beach. The friends are picking him up at noon, but we have to stop and charge up the car, and then we stop one more time just to make sure that the, the, the little electric car can make it through the mountains. And he's running a little late and getting a little impatient. And I'm saying little jokes like, well, you could always cancel if they want to leave without you. And, you know, we could always just go to the beach as a family. Like the old days, I'm sure we'd have just as much fun knowing that he'll either groan or not comment. He's used to this kind of thing from me. It's almost like a ritual. So we're listening to music. We're talking about life and doing all the things that he and I have done in the car together since he could talk, actually since before he could talk, when I would take him out every single day and play the Beatles and we'd go to the grocery store to buy something for that night's dinner. And once in a while, he'd fall asleep in the car and I would pull over and roll down the windows a bit and just sit in silence, letting him nap, sitting and doing nothing, just being, just being a new dad, just being a dad, just being period. And all those times in between since then, in the car, going here and there, mornings to school, evenings to practices, weekends to tournaments or piano lessons or wherever, time in the car, time to catch up, time to converse, time to be father and son. And this felt oddly like the last time the last time. Who knows why? Maybe I was worried that something would happen to him at the beach, or maybe I was just feeling old, or maybe it was just the passage of time. A new stage for him, a new stage for us. I had been the father of a newborn, the father of a preschooler, and all the way up the ladder, and now the father of a high school graduate, and soon it wouldn't really be so much of a father anymore, at least not in the same way, not in the under-my-roof kind of way. 
I wanted that car trip to last forever, and he couldn't wait for it to end. And so we pulled in, finally, and I took my time getting out of the car while he fired his body into the house like a rocket, sprinting through rooms to grab clothes and gear. And I came in, hauling the laundry that I would soon do, something to kill time. I was going to be here alone in the house for the next few days. He, meanwhile, had minutes to spare. Only minutes. He had informed his friends of the delay. But they were eager, too, and they didn't, he didn't want them to have to wait any longer than necessary. I was hoping they might leave without him, <laughs> leave him behind. But, of course, I wasn't really hoping that. This was his trip, and I wanted him to enjoy, enjoy it. I knew that it would disappoint him if they left him behind. And as a parent, you never want your kids to feel sad or any negative emotions if they can be avoided. Certainly, I wasn't selfish enough to want him to miss out on his trip just to make me feel a little better. And one does not defeat time, nor do you battle your way to a tie. You just accept the whipping that you're going to take and continue the best you can. So I'm still dragging suitcases toward the laundry room when he shouts, okay, they're here, goodbye. And I come running toward the front door, which he's already left and closed. And I open the door and I'm shouting things about money and sunscreen and have a good time and stay safe and have a good time and stay safe and have a good time and stay safe. And I look out the door and his band of beach-going brothers have pulled up and they jump out of the car when they see him and they're excited and they open the trunk and they start helping him fit his bags in there with the other bags and they're all smiling and laughing and one of them is in the middle of eating an ice cream bar and for some reason that detail made me smile even as my heart was sinking into my stomach an ice cream bar in the car halfway through on the way to the beach I've been that kid and it is damn fun and I'm also smiling in spite of myself because my son my boy my beautiful boy who's very nearly all grown up now is smiling too these are his pals I'm glad he has, pals. This is his week of fun. I'm glad he has a week of fun. And I close the door, and I just want to hang on a bit. But I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be the angry dad who's hovering. He knows I was sort of against this trip, and I want him to have fun. So I close the door to give him that break from me. But I peer through the crack we have, where the windows on the door aren't quite clouded. We have some stickers that fog the glass privacy stickers but there's a little crack where the glass is clear and you can see clearly through it and I'm standing there secretly watching the scene watching these pals all pal around laughing telling each other the events that have already happened on the trip so far the news of who's going to be there who's late who's coming who's not who's bringing what all those who's and none of them me all those who's belong to him, are important to him, are him. I allow myself to watch because to do this because I want it, I need it, I want to cling to this moment and watch this car go. I know the drill. He jumps in on his way, grins at his pals, they zoom off. I want to watch it all. I want to watch the zoom and just stare at the empty road 
where the car once was, as if I can roll back time a bit, or as if their image makes an impression in the air, like images that burn their way into the memory of a screen, the memory of a dad, anyway. He can see things that were once there, dads can, just as there are moments of intensity where my teenage son looks up at me smiling and I see the preschooler smiling at me so intensely. I see the eyes, I see the expression, I see the person, I see the boy, all boys in one, all ages in one face, in one pair of eyes. And then as I'm standing there spying on my son and his crew, secretly mourning the end of my era as super dad, he turns and looks back at the door. He sees me. I thought I was invisible, but of course he knew where to look. And he looks right at me, peering through this little gap. And he sees me watching him. He probably knew I'd be there because he knows me better than I know myself. He knows the dad that I am better than I know that person. And he smiles and he waves. Glad to be going. Sad to be going too. Can't be everywhere. Not going to stay home. But glad that I was there. And glad that I was letting him go. Glad that I was there and glad that I've been there for him. It was the hardest day I've had since that first day of kindergarten when he didn't wave at all. I always thought that part of the sadness of that day was that he didn't wave then. But this wave was just as sweet, just as heartbreaking, just as sad. I know it was because of what I did next. The car pulled away, and I staggered back from the door and sank into the sofa and sobbed. The tears ran down my face. I'm not sure I've really cried like that. Well, maybe... Maybe I've not really cried like that ever. In the last 10 years or so, I've barely cried at all. I've cried for other people. And I've cried on this show. Amanda Stern made me cry. So did Patricia Engel. But I was crying for them. And of course, I've cried at funerals here and there when I see people who have lost their loved ones and are enduring as best as they can. I cry for them too. I cry for other people. This time, I think... I was crying for myself. <laughs> Finding it a little hard to talk. <laughs> was crying for myself, for the highs and lows of parenting, for the joys and the anxieties, for the passage of time, and all the parents I've been, all the versions of a parent that I've been and no longer am, the parent of that newborn, the parent of the toddler, the parent of the second grader wearing a Halloween costume he thinks is scary but is adorable. The parent of a third grader proudly coming home with a ribbon for something or other. The parent of the boys who can't wait to see me. And the ones who can't sleep the night before Christmas. The ones who can't wait to leave. To leave me. It just poured out of me. All the loss, the feeling of aging, the feeling that my own parents are aging too. My whole generation is getting older. We're turning things over. And the kids are fine, the kids are all right, but they're not really kids, not so much. They're headed for adulthood, headed too fast. I sat on the sofa and wept. It all poured out of me. So that's my freaks and geeks story. 
And it's my Roger Ebert story, too. And it's why I read novels and why I watch films and good shows and go to museums and listen to music, because I'm searching for that experience. And I'm searching for how best to understand those experiences. Cinema is not the station, Truffaut said. It's the train. I'm on that train rattling down those tracks, and I want to open the window and let the outdoors come pouring in and and blow my hair to the side and play cool across the hot tears running down my face. That train, the train I'm on, the one we're all on, is the train of life. And literature and movies and art enhance the journey and make me appreciate it more. Those things aren't just time killers to help me get through until I reach the station. They're the friends pointing out the window saying, look at that mountain, look at that sunset. Have you ever seen anything so marvelous? Isn't life wonderful? Aren't we lucky to be on this trip? They're the traveling companions you're thankful to have. All those novels, all those poems, all those paintings, all of it. They're the friends on my train, helping me to live my actual life, helping me to accept and to acknowledge and to recognize and to appreciate, to think stronger thoughts and feel deeper emotions to live in a world where I'm soaking up every second for all it can give. They are my companions pointing out the windows and saying, look at that, look there, look at life, isn't it wonderful? Hard, sure, full of sorrow and despair, absolutely, but beautiful and strange and marvelous and at times miraculous too. Those fellow travelers, that's what I get from Leo Tolstoy and Jane Austen and William Shakespeare and Baldwin and Hemingway and Kafka and Chekhov and Proust and Japanese haiku and Tang Dynasty poems, Thomas Hardy and Toni Morrison and Homer and Dante, all my fellow travelers on this train, helping me to see the wonders and warmth of the world the mountains and the valleys, the skies and the sea. Great directors are there, Coppola and Scorsese and Fellini and Hitchcock and Wells and Truffaut, and the poets are there, and the painters and the composers and the novelists. Philip Larkin is there, sitting alone, and James Joyce is there, rubbing his spectacles. And Roger Ebert is there, too, smiling and nodding, his eyes merry and wise. And I know that he is as thrilled as I am to be on the ride. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. <laughs> ah, let's close with one of Roger Ebert's quotes. This comes from his autobiography. He says, quote, To make others less happy is a crime. To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute joy to the world. That is true no matter what our problems, our health, our circumstances. We must try. End quote. Well, I gave it a shot today. <laughs> For my birthday. I didn't, I hope I didn't make you less happy. I contributed a little joy, at least in the confines of my own heart. The joys of parenting, which feel like free-falling into space sometimes, although one hopes the parachute will open, and it almost always does. So, what else to say? I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>